Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 398, The Clubberman. Last time then we heard the story of Naseby and a terrible disaster for Charles at the hand of the new Noddle Army and its brutish general, Thomas Fairfax. This time, this episode, we are going to sweep up the fallout from Naseby, which turns out to be both a military and a propaganda disaster for Charles, and then in the second half, we're going to turn to Fairfax's Seek and Destroy campaign in the West to seek and destroy George Goring. But the main reason for this is not to see if George will crash and burn or hum and fly, but to talk about one of the more interesting phenomena of the civil wars, when the provinces revolt and turn to club law to defend their homes and communities. We're going to talk clubmen. So after a battle of maybe three hours, the soldiers of the new model army finally earned the right to sit among the fields of bodies and eat their cheese and biscuits in reward for a hard day's work well done. Rupert and his horsemen fled to Brizzle, and for the first time the king's dashing general fell into a bit of a gloom, I have to tell you, Mr Grumpy. He spent his time with the beautiful Mary Stuart, Duchess of Richmond, who also has, incidentally, been identified possibly as a secret poet called Ephelia. Just saying, that's all I know. There had been gossip of an affair between the two of them, people noting that she had used beating up of the quarters too frequently with Prince Rupert. 
Is that a naval bit of terminology and euphemism, I wonder? Anyway, Rupert had received a cold dash of reality at Naysbury, and nobody enjoys that, do they? So let's leave him beating to quarters with Mary Stuart for the moment and turn our gaze to Charles. He had fled like a Nazgul to South Wales, to Raglan Castle, and if you're going to salve your soul, there are few lovelier places to go. But for three weeks, he seems to have entered a sort of parallel universe where this defeat had just not happened, filling his days with happy hunting. He was now surrounded entirely by courtiers of the likes of Digby, who continued with wild optimism. The consequences of this disaster will not have great extent, said gorgeous George. Others around Charles found the whole thing frankly a bit weird. We were there all lulled to sleep with sports and entertainments, as if no crown had been at stake, nor in any danger to be lost. It is worthwhile remember that he did have the nucleus of an army with him. He had some 4,000 cavalry that had escaped Naseby, and he'd hooked up with those 3,000 Welsh levies who'd never made it to Naseby on time. There were deals to be done with the Irish. There was Goring in the West Country sitting outside Blessed Taunton. There was Montrose ripping it up in Scotland. News reached them that on the 2nd of July, Montrose had won yet another brilliant victory at Alford. He'd showed guile, patience and what's more he'd won without McCullough, though the Highland charge was very much a feature under McCullough's deputy. It was extraordinary. Only one Covenanter army now stood between Montrose and Edinburgh. So back to Charles. Although you might think those were his arms and legs lying on the ground of Naysbury, maybe the Black Knight was correct. Maybe twas but a scratch. Charles, though, did not turn out to have the personal and behavioural armoury for this particular type of situation. He's not a King Alfred. Despite the poor results so far, in many ways it might be said that Charles had had a good war. I know it sounds a bit absurd. After all, he is in the poo right enough, however black knightish he might be feeling. As a tactical commander, he had delivered some impressive campaigns against Waller at Coprady, a Banzai result against Essex. He'd grown in confidence and together with Hyde, he'd been an impressive party leader around a traditional cry of the Book of Common Prayer and the ancient constitution and rights of kings. Fair dues, he had made a couple of absolute stinker decisions. His botched instructions to Rupert over Marston Moor, a decision to fight at Naseby, and they had cost him dear. He'd also always had a difficult council of war to deal with, all kinds of faction going on and his constant need to consult it, which slowed decision-making down. But he had managed all the eddies reasonably well. But in this new situation of dire adversity, Charles was to prove a poor leader, a poor judge of character, and he made a howler now. His best commander, and probably his only hope, was Rupert. But Naseby had shaken Charles's confidence with Rupert. And he listened to Digby now as he undermined Rupert at every turn, questioning his loyalty, his competence. Rupert was fully aware of what Digby was doing, and he proposed a conference in July to get together and plan strategy and re-establish confidence. But Charles packed out at the last moment, which was A, rude, but B, worse, he sent his refusal via a note telling Rupert that his arch 
enemy, Digby, would explain the reasons for his non-attendance. I am not having time myself to do it, he wrote. I mean, that's not great good management, is it? What else more important was he doing with his time, might we ask? Rupert kept digging, though, in his reply by taking an unpopular defeatist, or you might say realistic, approach with his favourite unk. His Majesty had no way left to preserve his posterity, kingdom and nobility, but by a treaty, to retain something than lose it all. Now, from the swashbuckling Rupert, this is tantamount to abject surrender. Charles's response burned. Speaking as a mere soldier or statesman, I must say there is not probability but of my ruin. But as a Christian, I must tell you that God will not suffer rebels or traitors to prosper. Actually, plot spoiler, that is exactly what rebels and traitors are going to do. But it is a very interesting note, not only for the put-down of mere soldier or statesman, Rupert, but Charles's worldview was as providential as Eddie. God was making him suffer yet for deserting Strafford. But his cause was just, and in the end, God would come through and see him all right. This rupture with Rupert was a disaster for the king's faltering cause. In Digby, we trust, is not a motto for victory. Although, interestingly, next week, when Jonathan Healy, a proper historian and author of The Blazing World, he disagrees. History is fun, isn't it? Back at Naseby then, while their men ate their biscuits and sang psalms and seated all round, Fairfax wrote to Speaker Lentor, praising God, but also Skippen, Ireton and Cromwell. Cromwell also wrote to Lenthal, and he praised God first, of course, and then Fairfax, whom he said, served you with all faithfulness and honour. And then he praised his men. In so doing, he makes a pitch. Honest men served you faithfully in this action, sir, they are trusty. I wish this action may beget thankfulness and humility in all that are concerned on it. He that ventures his life for the liberty of his country, I wish he trust God for the liberty of his conscience, and you for the liberty he fights for. This plea for freedom of conscience would put the wind right up a variety of audience members. The Church of England traditionists, Presbyterians, both English and Scots. This was the voice of independency. And Argyle and the Scottish commissioners reading it wondered once more if a victory for the English Parliament really was what they wanted, because it might do nought but open the door for these independents. But London and the news books, they went potty. Fairfax, he was their principal darling. One praised his alacrity of spirit, another his energy and inspiration. He was to and again in the front, carrying orders, bringing on divisions in the midst of dangers in gallant bravery, and received not the least wound, though he engaged bareheaded and routed the enemy. Londoners gathered to watch as the captured royalist soldiers were brought back trooping disconsolately into London and were held at the artillery gardens at Tothill Fields. And they organised entertainments for these folks. 
When I say entertainments, what I mean is they treated them to a flurry of sermons. But how grateful the Royalist soldiers must have been, those lucky, lucky lads. But the people who enjoyed themselves the most were Henry Parker, the Observator, Apostle of Liberty, and Marchmont Needham, the Apostle of Gossip and Journalism. Name rhymes with freedom, don't you know? Because the King's private letters had been captured at the battle. When this was revealed to the army commanders back at camp, it seems Fairfax was a bit embarrassed by this. And he didn't really want to invade the King's privacy. Let's just leave them. Because, you know, he's a lovely sort of bloke. Cromwell and Ireton were not so lovely. They had no such qualms at all. There are 200 letters of potential political dynamite here. What are you talking about, Tom? They needed to be in the hands of Parliament like the Sultans of Swing. Double four time. The public furore over the publication of many of these letters later in the public press is almost always presented in terms of the public reaction, and that is, of course, the big news. It was a public relations disaster for the king. The letters laid bare just how far the king was prepared to go to prosecute the war against his own people. He was seen promising religious liberty to the Irish Catholics, which sounds to us very good back then, not so much, especially given Charles said constantly made public pronouncements against the very idea of doing that. The letters included proposals to the French and Dutch government, so apparently the self-styled father of the English nation was super happy to negotiate with foreign powers for military support against the repression of his children. Though kids, you know, there are times when every parent is prepared to suspend habeas corpus just for the greater good, just so you know. The correspondence between King and Queen were laid bare and revealed the Queen's deep influence and involvement in decision-making. And since Henrietta Maria was guilty of the composite crimes of being French, Catholic and a woman in a position of power, not necessarily in that order though, this did not go down well at all. But most of all, through it all, the King was revealed as deeply untrustworthy, deeply duplicitous, you could not trust the lad as far as he could throw his head on a cold winter's day. But also interesting is the manner of how it happened. Because Lord Say and Seal recognised immediately that these letters were indeed political dynamite, not just with the Gen pub, but also in the emerging war between Presbyterian and Independent at Parliament. Because they also showed rather damaging conversations that had gone on at the Oxbridge treaty negotiations between the King and Scots and the King and the English Presbyterian leaders like Denzel Hollis and Bolstrode Whitlock. They seem to be showing a scary level of willingness to stitch up a separate deal between them. So Sayin Seal and Zush Tate and others manipulated the process of communication. They called in Henry Parker, the observator, as the King Communicator. He worked day and he worked night, and then he published it all under the title The King's Cabinet Opened, providing helpful and explicatory annotations to make sure no one missed the true points. There was then a public programme of revelations. The King's personal letters were read out at the London Common Hall to public outrage. But those letters about the backstairs conversations between the Scots and the King and Hollis and the King, they were kept out of the public eye for the moment. Which is interesting. As an independent, 
You'd have thought Saiyan Seal would have made hay and shouted them to the skies, but he did not. The reason he did not may be that in the emerging battle between Independent and Presbyterian, Say and Seal saw this as a moment for conciliation. Unlike Marston Moore, Naseby had been won without Scottish involvement, and meanwhile Scottish reputation was also suffering from Montrose's wild successes. So this was a time where some English unity could be preserved from the yoke of Scottish demands. When Parker published his pamphlet, the newsbooks, of course, leapt right on board, and none leapt with greater gusto and more glee than Marchmont Needham, name rhymes with freedom, who thought Christmas, birthday, Easter and bonfire night had arrived all rolled into one. I mean, what journo would not love this? Imagine if the son had been hacking Charles's phone, purely in the public interest, of course. By now, Needham was pretty much in total control of Mercurius Britannicus, and he brought all its guns to bear. Serialising the letters, why does this all sound so modern? With annotations, to make sure again no one missed anything, punching the bruise until the purple shone bright. In his hue and cry against the king, he accused the king with a guilty conscience, bloody hands, a heart full of broken protestations. He also mocked the king for his stammer. The lords were outraged, they threw him in the slammer about the stammer, <laughs> and Marchmont was forced to publicly publish a retraction. Why does that sound so modern? I am sorry for the offence I have caused. I will educate myself. There is nothing new under the sun. An amusing little wrinkle is that a similar thing would happen later in the year when George Digby, he allowed his correspondence to be captured at Sherborne and his letters were similarly incendiary, with lots of conversations about foreign support from the Duke of Lorraine in France. It also included a letter from our Georgie Porgy berating the King to Henrietta Maria for allowing his correspondence to fall into the hands of Parliament after Naseby. Ah, George, the irony. Pots, kettle, black. OK, well, we might noodle around talking about the King's private correspondence, but not Fairfax. Oh, no. Parliament's general, he had work to do. He drove his new model hard. There was no resting or lying around on laurels. He marched them hard and fast now to the West Country, where the last royal army lived under the command of George Goring. Interestingly, they met up with the old Parliamentary Western Association army under Edward Massey on the way, and the contrast with the new model is quite interesting, because on the way, Fairfax was met by multiple delegations of clubmen complaining bitterly about the behaviour of Mass's men. But they would find little to complain about where the new model was concerned, where control was much, much tighter. Anyway, Fairfax drove his army on, 17 miles a day, storming down to the West Country, into Wiltshire, Dorset, finally Somerset, a good deal faster than you'll manage to do these days on the A303. His first objective was Taunton, with his strength up to 14,000, he massively outnumbered Goring, who with maybe half that number did his best to avoid battle. He lifted the siege of Taunton, made some clever feints here and there, kidding Fairfax he was heading to the south and sending off detachments to cover it. And so in the end, he was able to choose his ground at Langport, turn and face Fairfax with maybe 10,000 men now. 
Fairfax, though, was absolutely on his game and the new model army with him. Langport was one of the very few battles where artillery actually played a significant part, pounding the royalist position. Thomas Rainsborough led a forlorn hope detachment that turned out to have a jolly good hope, actually, since they drove the royalist musketeers backwards. But the piece de resistance was the cavalry charges through the narrow lanes that Goring thought impregnable. The flavour of the new model was sort of summed up when Captain Richard Baxter heard Major Thomas Harrison with a loud voice break forth into praises of God with fluent expressions as if he had been in a rapture. Goring fled with the remnants of his army to Bridgewater. By the 21st of July, Fairfax was there as well, taking along the way 1,400 prisoners as Goring's army disintegrated around him. To see this is to see the face of God, enthused Gromwell. Goring retreated to Devon and to Exeter. To cut a long story very short, by October, Fairfax would be back, drawing the noose around Exeter. Goring had the Prince of Wales with him at the, at the time, actually, Charles. Goring, though, wasn't really that interested in the Prince of Wales or his future. He wrote instead to Charles, saying he was feeling a bit tired and he needed a couple of months. Bye! Found a boat, maybe with Essex Wazir scratched into the gunnels and legged it to the continent, leaving everyone behind. The rest of George's life seems to have been something of an anticlimax. There is a record of him asking Charles II for help in Madrid, and since Charles II was the lad, Prince of Wales, he deserted in his boat. It's not surprising none was forthcoming, and Madrid was where George died in 1656. Back in 1645, Fairfax steadily torched any hope at all of a comeback in the West Country for the royal party, capturing Sherborne and Bath. His objective was that great prize, Bristol. Great centre of trade, from where Charles's fleet operated and kept pace and touch with Ireland. Bristol the Mighty, which Rupert had sworn to his king he would hold. I don't think he did the Lionheart thing and say that he'd hold it even if the walls were made of butter, but that was exactly the sentiment. No way would a single darned rebel get past those walls. And traitors, well, they were right out. We are not at home to Mr and Mrs Traitor. You can hang your hat on that uncle or crown, whatever. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. However, this campaign was marked by one of the more remarkable features of the Civil War, the Clubmen. I have spent a bit of time talking about the pain of the Civil Wars on the local people, the taxes, soldiers, fortresses and garrisons, excise duty on food, Lord's Lieutenant and county committees. In June, Fairfax came to the town of Blandford in Dorset when he came across a rather remarkable local arrangement that was going on there. There were two opposing garrisons in the area, and in the normal run of things, you could fully expect them to be going at it, hammer, and going at it, tongs. But the neighbourhood, meanwhile, would be groaning under the pain of double-dipping local taxes, impressment, raids and violence. But not here in Blandford. It was odd. 
and then on the 2nd of July, some representatives of the area presented themselves to Fairfax, among them a couple of brothers called the Halls. And they were not apologetic or subservient, despite the presence of, you know, thousands of fighting men in the New Model Army. They had a certain amount of attitude. After the meeting, Fairfax sat down and wrote a long letter to Parliament explaining the situation and seeking guidance. He explained that the ordinary folk of the local community had seen fit to put together a declaration that there would be no warring in their area. That until the King and Parliament had sat down and thrashed things out properly, there would be no impressment, no extra taxes, no plundering, none of that at all. As Fairfax wrote, they take upon them to interpose between the garrisons of either side and when any of their forces meet in places where they have sufficient power, as Salisbury and the like, they will not suffer them to fight, but make them drink together, and so make them part to their several garrisons. The Halls brothers made it clear that if anyone tried to force them into something that offended against their local arrangement, they could call on 20,000 men to put them in their place. John Rushworth, Fairfax's secretary described their movement succinctly. Two captains of the clubmen, as they were called, being a great number of the inhabitants of several parts of Wiltshire and some counties adjacent, who gathered themselves together, alleging they did but stand on their own defence, to prevent plundering, and that they would in that posture remain neuters until the king and his parliament should agree. This is probably not the first time Fairfax had come across such populism, or indeed probably the Halls brothers, since they also seem to have been at Salisbury that Fairfax had come through. On the 13th of June, they'd established similar agreements with the garrisons there and published a set of articles headlined For the Peace and Safety of the County. Just as in Blandford, they undertook to pay £50 to each garrison each week, which they'd collect from the parishes themselves, and that would cover for any of that normal taxation and impressment stuff. These people were not the normal leaders of the parish. They weren't the grander sort, nor were they the gentry. The groups were generally referred to as clubmen, and it's normally assumed that this was according to the fact that they were armed with clubs or some basic weaponry, though quite a few of them got hold of muskets, actually, and knew how to use them. But it could equally be that the word clubman neatly also includes the concept of clubbing together. So there are a few general strands to all of this. One is the idea of popular but essentially conservative protest. As I believe I may have mentioned up to a billion times, English society was very structured and hierarchical. And while there might be many who kicked against it, by and large, the vast majority bought into the idea of the great chain of being and essential inequality. But that chain of being included responsibilities that went both ways along the chain. So there had been a long tradition of popular protest where ordinary people would protest that these rules and responsibilities had been broken and they would take the law into their own hands to restore those rules. The simplest manifestation of this was the food riot. Food riots were never meant to overturn the natural order of things. They were just there to make sure that there was proper redress for an offence against what E.P. Thompson called the moral economy of crowds in a famous article of 1971. Grain hoarders, for example, were breaking the unwritten rules. Similar 
were the enclosure riots, and more complicated were the Tudor rebellions such as Robert Kett and the commotion times of 1549. The moral economy is essentially that natural order unwritten, but un... <sighs> the moral economy is essentially that natural unwritten order of things, the responsibilities the privileged had to look after the powerless. So these major rebellions were essentially conservative. Look, you lot have broken things by not making sure your people have enough to eat. Or, you are introducing new ideas like enclosure, you need to go back to the good old ways. Level those fences. So that's one tradition. There was another, which was the county neutralism at the start of the war that we talked about then, those 22 county neutrality agreements which refused to accept that this national dispute would intrude into the peace and well-being of the provinces. Fairfax had met and made use of the third strand of populism and clubmen, which was more radical and assertive. So the uprisings we heard about in West Yorkshire in the clothing towns, which had indeed taken sides, they'd chosen Parliament in defiance of their local gentry. All three share in different measure populism and a regional focus. In a way, the revolt of the West Yorkshire towns is the most interesting, being the most socially and politically radical. The West Country clubmen in 1645 are essentially conservative. They continuously make the same claim. The centre must re-establish the natural order of things, King and Parliament working in concert. But they are also deeply radical, in that they are a revolt of the provinces and a revolt of the lower orders, because they were taking over the normal order of government, taking control and kill King, Parliament, Gentry, get back in line. Now, there can have been fewer better men for the clubmen to meet than Thomas Fairfax. He was used to dealing with this and had done so in West Yorkshire. He was naturally and deeply in sympathy with many of their aims and he dealt sympathetically with them. He largely accepted the case made by the Halls brothers that they would maintain their local arrangements while their petitions were now forwarded and considered by Parliament. And in his dispatch to Parliament he included the line I leave it to other men to call them knaves of clubs, for I will not use myself ill language. Nonetheless, the actions of the clubmen were viewed with enormous suspicion by central authority and local gentry. This was the world turned upside down. This was not the natural order of things. From their point of view, this was not the role of the ordinary people to take such control over their destiny, to have such firm agency, and worse to be threatening enforcement of their rules with violence against their social betters. So as one news sheet put it, the third party had peeped. For many months, in many corners, they will have an army without a king, a lord or a gentleman almost. The clubmen were also a third party, as the news sheet put it. They offended both sides by being on their own side. For the committed of both sides... This was no way to win the ideological battle. The parliamentarian John Vickers, for example, described them as rotten-hearted, nauseous neutrals. And there's much of the same wording coming from the royalist side too. As they marched to Langport, the parliamentary army and the new model heard of the recent meetings of other groups of clubmen at Windsor, Newbury and at Andover. At May, at the Bradbury Rings, the Wiltshire and Dorset clubmen had met and put together a declaration, which was read out to the assembled mass of 4,000 locals by one Thomas Young. This declaration, 
protested against the arbitrary power of the sword. This was a common and much repeated theme. The Declaration had four key demands, which tied in very closely with the 1642 protestation, if you remember that. Henry Martin's idea of the protestation, though, had been designed to draw support to Parliament. Here, it was used in defence of the conservative view of the Constitution of England. King, Parliament, Protestant religion. The Declaration made a commitment from this new popular and temporary local government towards the members of the community they served. That reparation be made to parties by the whole county. And in cases of loss of life, provision be made for his wife and children by the county and to condemn those that stayed apart from this new movement. Declare all such unworthy of the general assistance as shall refuse or delay to join with us in the prosecution of these our just intentions. 4,000 meanwhile also gathered at Castle Hill in Somerset. They petitioned the Prince of Wales, denouncing the intolerable oppression, rapine and violence of Goring's troops and they also produced a declaration very similar to that of Wiltshire and Dorset. Here then was the philosophy, the local community against violence from whatever side. There is a ballad that survives from the time which puts the point about the suffering of ordinary people rather neatly. It's called The Western Husbandman's Lamentation. I had six auction the other day, and then the roundhead fetched away, a mischief to their speed. I had six horses as a whole, and them the Cavaliers stole. I think in this they may be agreed. Despite this regional neutralist story, they nonetheless used a national language, so this is not about separatism. They simply wanted the national leadership, King and Parliament, to live up to their responsibility to restore order and protect society. The clubmen had intelligence and sophistication. They had organisation and process. They wore a white ribbon as a sign of belonging and neutralism. They elected officials and treasurers. They issued warrants to collect money from parishes and order people to gather for meetings and rang church bells to call them to arms. After the victory at Langport and the capture of Bridgewater, Fairfax turned back towards Bristol and rocked up to Sherburne Castle on the way. There he came across the clubmen again and the Halls brothers. But the fury there had been directed at parliamentarian armies this time rather than George Goring, at the Western Association Army under Edward Massey. Fairfax saw the collusion between the Royalist Governor of Sherborne and the clubman as a threat, and now he wanted it stopped. He saw it as a third force that could damage Parliament's cause, so when he learned of another meeting at Castle Hill, Colonel Charles Fleetwood was sent with a thousand horse to disperse it. Fleetwood surrounded Castle Hill, captured the leading clubman members. Almost universally, despite their often enormous numbers, the clubmen were helpless. Regular garrisons they could overawe, but not the marching armies, even when vastly outnumbering them. These armies were just too well armed, organised, experienced and led. Rupert and the Royalist armies had already met big numbers of clubmen back in March 1645 in Herefordshire. At one stage, 25,000 clubmen had gathered around Hereford and practically besieged the Royalist garrison there. Rupert arrived with his army, agreed articles of surrender with the clubmen, and then executed three of the leaders, and in contravention of the agreement, set his troops on the local area, who plundered every parish and house, poor as well as others, 
leaving neither clothes nor provision. About the time Fairfax was dispersing the royalist-oriented clubman of Sherborne, Charles himself met the phenomenon of a similar movement, the so-called Peaceable Army. So, there was Charles in Wales, trying to re-establish a new army, and up cropped an enormous group of 5,000 men at Cardiff, led by a gentleman on a horse, and they were all drawn up in battle array. Well, as far as Charles was concerned, this was too good to be true. Here it was, his new army, and presumably all he had to do was hand out the orders. After all, he was king. Well, turns out that the peaceable army, as they called themselves, had an agenda all of their own, and they weren't just waiting around for the king to give them orders and fall into line. They made this quite clear when they met on the 29th of July, 1645. They were not happy, they said, with the way the royalist Colonel Gerard had conducted himself, and they had conditions before they would consider serving in the king's cause. They demanded the removal of the governor of Cardiff and a Welshman to be put in his place. They demanded to choose their own officers, have papists removed from the county and payments demanded by Gerard should be remitted. Charles made promises, so that was fine. But to his outrage, frankly, they didn't believe him and they demanded assurances. Charles replaced the governor, but after he then rode out, the new governors reneged on the agreement and it all fell apart and he never did get his new army. Although neutralism and defence of community were central, in practice the clubmen often did have a preference for one side or t'other. Sometimes that might be local circumstances. So the behaviour of the new model army, for example, won hearts by their much greater restraint as they marched. But at other times, the local culture seems to have had an impact. This is where David Underdown detected in the West Country a difference between the chalk-down environment of Dorset and Wiltshire and the woodland and pastoral areas of Somerset and Gloucestershire. So, the former, the chalk downs of Dorset and Wiltshire, these were primarily arable country, and that meant they were an area of nucleated villages, strong traditional hierarchy, religion based around the Book of Common Prayer, where Anglican churchmen were often involved in protest. Here, the royalist cause was often preferred by this sort of traditionalist culture, such was the case at Sherborne, as we have heard, and also the nearby gathering at Hambledon Castle, which was called by the Reverend Thomas Brevel. Clubmen, unsurprisingly, often used traditional meeting points, old hundred moots, or, as here, Iron Age hill forts. So on the August the 4th, Fairfax heard of a large gathering of maybe 3,000 people at Hambledon Hill who'd gathered with arms to free three of their leaders who had been arrested by Fairfax. So, Thomas sent Cromwell with a thousand dragoons. Now, just like Fairfax, Cromwell was basically sympathetic to the clubmen, but he agreed with Fairfax that they could not be allowed to become a state within a state. So, three times he asked the clubmen to be dispersed. At one time, he was shot at by a musketeer among them. In the end, Cromwell ordered his dragoons to disperse them by force. About 12 were killed and 300 captured. These prisoners were then marched down to St Mary's Church, where they were treated to a lecture by Cromwell from the pulpit. They should, of course, have the liberty to defend themselves against plundering, but must let the soldiers go about their business, and meetings like yesterday's could not be countenanced. And then Cromwell sent them on their way. On the other hand, then, the woodland and pastoral areas of Somerset and Gloucestershire seemed to favour Parliament. Settlement was much more dispersed there, 
Puritanism stronger, smaller communities which were much more individualistic, helped by greater levels of rural clothing industry. So at Bridgewater, the communities quietly cooperated with Fairfax and as the new model marched to Bristol, the Somerset clubmen allowed him to recruit 1,500 men from their ranks into the new model. So this is not quite the end of the clubmen, though they largely disappear as the First Civil War and the open sore of marching armies and garrisons come to an end. But there are still the county committees. I did see a quote about the county committees which simply said, everyone hated the county committees. It gave me a thrill of pleasure. So nice to find at least one point of agreement in these divided times. Any point of agreement. In the Second Civil War, though, the Dorset branch reappear and they raise a new petition. Interestingly, that petition says, look, raising petitions is a bit of a mugs game here, so we're going to tell you exactly what we're going to do for ourselves. And yes, county committees are right up there. That we may no longer subjugate our necks to the boundless lusts and unlimited power of beggarly and broken committees. In 1649, a contingent of clubmen set out from Somerset to join the Levellers at Burford, now a genuinely political and popular movement. So the tradition was carried on, and I may be stretching it a bit, but maybe there's a link with the clubmen all the way to conservative protests such as the swing riots of the 1830s, which we'll get to in, what, a couple of centuries' time. Anyway, that's as maybe, but next time here we are for Bristol. If you are interested in the Clubman movement, I have put an article on a page of the website at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Just search for Clubman. And also, I have put a link to the blog Clubman 1645, where there's an e-book by Hayden Wheeler, which is very interesting and very good indeed, and costs but a couple of quid. That's it then for now. Next week we have a chat between Jonathan Healy and I. Jonathan is author of the tremendously engaging book on the 17th century, The Blazing World, which I use loads and loads. Meanwhile then, thank you all very much for listening as ever. Good luck everyone and have a great week. <laughs>